Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. The Lord our God made a few public appearances in the past. One of the most famous appearances would be when he caused the flood of Noah. When he caused the flood of Noah, that was definitely a moment for people to recognize that there is a God. I personally believe that this is a public appearance in the sense that he has done something in a very public way for the whole world to see so that news would get around. People would see, they would know, they would understand, they would have plenty of evidence to show them that there is a God. Now, of course, there weren't very many people who survived that, but it was a very public event. It was a very public event, even though most of the public died. My point, though, is that our God took some time to intervene. He intervened in the world that he had created. He saw what people were doing, and he tolerated it for a while. But eventually he said, you know what? I have had enough. I am now going to intervene, and I'm going to do something about it. Another very important public appearance was when the children of Israel were in Egypt, and he set them free. The way that he set them free was to inflict the Egyptians with plagues. He dispensed a number of plagues in order to show them that he was the true God. Each plague was, in fact, a judgment against many of the gods of Egypt. It was a way that he publicly showed himself, and this time, some people survived. Most of the people survived. My point, though, is that Our God has made some public appearances. He has intervened. He has done things. He has shown himself. And if anyone wants to find some evidence to determine whether or not he is and whether or not he intervenes in the lives of people, I believe that there is enough evidence available that a person can easily be convinced if they pursue this, if they really want to know this. Now, the Lord our God made a number of public appearances, and then he brought the children of Israel out into the desert, he took them out of Egypt, brought them into the desert, took them to Saudi Arabia, and when they got there, he made another public appearance. He came down personally. There were about two and a half million people that were there at Mount Sinai. And he came down personally, and he spoke to all of those people in a way that there was no question in their minds that there was a God who had set them free from slavery, who took them out of the land of Egypt and led them into this total wasteland, relatively speaking, and he came down and he roasted this mountain with lightning and fire, and he spoke to them, and they all heard and saw their God, at least to the extent that he was able to reveal himself to them. Now, you probably would expect that these people would be really excited to hear from their God. They would be really excited about that. They would really listen to what he had to say. They would really pay attention. That they would definitely be interested in every word that he is willing to share with them. These are people 
who have history, they have knowledge of God, there were stories that were passed on from generation to generation. These people knew about this God. They saw the plagues that he inflicted on the Egyptians. They saw the salvation that he provided for them. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They, wa- they were the ones who walked through it. They saw the water coming out of the rock in the middle of nowhere. These are people who had many opportunities to see that their God was real, that he is real, and they had the privilege of hearing everything that he had to say. But how long did that last? Well, that lasted for the first Ten Commandments. He gave the first ten, and then the people said, Thank you very much. We have heard enough. We are not interested in hearing any more, because we're afraid of you, for one thing. But in addition to that, they were concerned about being confronted with the reality that there was a God in their midst. And so what they said was, was that we do not want to hear from him. We don't want to hear from our God. Moses, you go talk with God over in that tent over there. You go outside of the camp. You go talk with him. And if he's got something to say to us, then he can tell you, and then you can come into our community, and you can tell us what he had to say. Now, I do not believe that this is the way God wanted it to be. I really don't. I don't believe that. I personally think that he had the expectation, or at least he had the interest, in sharing with everyone directly from his mouth to their ears, and that he was not necessarily looking for that kind of a conclusion to this scenario, to this situation. That he was not looking to just have one person who he would speak to, and then that person could go and tell everybody else, why couldn't he do that? What's wrong with him? What's wrong with God speaking to his people? What's wrong with that? Well, what was wrong was that the people did not want to hear from him. And I know that might sound a little bit bizarre, considering everything that he did for them. Everything that he did for them. All the signs, all the wonders, the miracles, everything that he did for these people. And this is how they speak to him. They say, we don't want to hear from you. Now, what kind of a relationship do you suppose our God could have with these people? I mean, what kind of a relationship can he have with them at that point? Well, a very limited one, I would say, a very limited one, that there wouldn't be a whole lot that he could do in order to address the issues that he really wanted to address. There wasn't a whole lot he could do to work with the people in the way that he wanted to work with them. In fact, all of the people, with the exception of two, died in the wilderness and never entered the promised land. That was how he dealt with those people. Now, was that because he decided, he decided that he didn't want those people to hear from him? Is, is that what, what he decided? Is that what he thought? You think that that was God's intent? That that was his desire? I don't think so. I personally believe that he really wanted to speak to those people. You see, for them to say, we don't want to hear from you, tells me that he was about to say something else. And they cut him off. This was a decision that the people made. Now, when the Lord brought the Messiah, when the Lord Jesus came, our God manifested in the flesh, dwelling among us, living with us, taking upon the name Jesus. He lived, he worked, he died. He had relationships with a lot of people. When the Messiah came, 
most of the people who he spoke to did not receive him as their Messiah. Most of the people rejected him. At the end of his ministry, there were very few people who had an interest in him for who he was. Now, that interest, of course, grew after he rose from the dead. That's for sure. We have a wonderful history of the development of the early church found in the book of Acts. But what I want you to consider is that when the Messiah came, most of the people rejected him. Now, do you think that that's what he wanted? Do you you think that that's what he really wanted, that he wanted the people to reject him the way that, that they did? I don't think so. What would have happened? Consider for a moment, what would have happened if the people accepted him? Would that really be a problem? I mean, would that interfere with the salvation that he was about to present to the world? Would that have interfered with that? Absolutely not. Not a chance. If the majority of the people in Israel, even the religious leadership and the priesthood, if those people acknowledged him for who he was and they submitted to their king, what do you think the Romans would do? Well, they would have captured him for sedition and they would have crucified him and then he would have resurrected from the dead. It wouldn't have mattered at that point whether the people accepted him or rejected him. He came to provide salvation and there was no way that anyone was going to stop him from doing what he came to accomplish. But what I want you to understand is that people chose to accept him and people chose to reject him. And it would not have mattered if people chose to reject him or they chose to accept him. It wouldn't have mattered. He still would have accomplished what he came to accomplish. The same thing with the children of Israel in the desert. If they all rejected him, they all rejected him. He waited for another generation and gave them the opportunity to go in. And if they rejected him, he could have sent them back into the wilderness for another 40 years and tried with the next one. I figure that a few iterations of that, he would eventually find a people who would be interested in something different. Absolutely. But please pay attention to this. And that is that when the Messiah came, some people decided not to embrace him for who he really was, and other people did choose to embrace him for who he was, and the numbers of people were not important. They weren't important, because again, regardless of whether the majority accepted him or the majority rejected him, he still would have been crucified no matter what. That was the situation that he walked into, and I believe he knew that when he walked into this situation during this time in history. Now, I'm explaining this to you because after he rose from the dead and the gospel, the good news was presented to humanity, it was initially presented as an offer because it is an offer. It is an offer for salvation to anyone who would be willing to receive the salvation that our God is offering. And there were some people who chose to believe and there were some people who chose not to believe. That's what happened. People made their decisions. People made their choices with regards to whether they were going to believe the truth or not. And even though they did not have a very good understanding of the gospel at that time, even though they did not fully understand the implications of what Jesus truly had accomplished for them, they had something. They had something to work with. Now, who were the people who believed and who were the people Who did not believe? They were all children of Israel, predominantly the Jews, the tribe of Judah. 
the people of the tribe of Judah. There were some Benjamites and some Levites there as well. But my point is, is I want you to understand that the early church was completely composed of Jews. It was a bunch of Jews. And some of them received the gospel, received the Messiah, and others did not. Now, we're talking about the chosen people here. That's what we're talking about, or that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the chosen people, the people who were chosen by God. Chosen for what? Well, they were chosen for a number of things. Sometimes I consider that they were chosen to be used as a bad example, perhaps. But they were mainly chosen to be the people who he would use in order to resolve the issues of humanity. First of all, he had to deal with the question of the knowledge of good and evil. He dealt with that through the Mosaic Law. He had to deal with the spiritual death of humanity. He dealt with that through the Messiah. How would we know who the Messiah was and how would the Messiah manifest himself and what would he do in order to confirm and verify to people that he was who he claimed to be? Well, that was all foreshadowed in the Law and the Prophets. That's what our God decided to do. So the Jews were a chosen people for many things. That is true. But just because they were chosen doesn't mean that they're going to be saved. Yes, that's true, that God chose them, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be saved. In Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all. God be blessed forever. Amen. He says very clearly that he recognizes that he has a people, that he has kinsmen, brothers, brethren. These are people, these are Jews, and he recognizes that they are going to go to hell, that they are not going to be saved. He recognizes that by saying that he wishes that he himself could be accursed and separated from Christ if his brethren could effectively be joined to Christ. Now, that's not going to happen. And why would that not happen? That will not happen because everyone has to make their own choice in the matter. You cannot decide for someone else if they are going to be saved or not. This is between them and their God, just as it was between you and your God. Now, when he speaks about his brethren and his kinsmen, the Jews who he knew, those people who he grew up with, how did these people think of him? I mean, if this is how he thought of them, that he would give everything for them. He would give his eternal life for them if they could be saved, which tells me that they can't be unless they decide that they want to be saved. If this is his attitude towards them, what was their attitude towards him? How did they see him? He refers to them as brethren, as kinsmen. He would see them as fellow Jews, as Israelites. He would embrace them according to the flesh, and he would never deny who they were. 
But how would they see him? They would deny him. They would say that he was no longer a Jew. They would say that he is no longer an Israelite. They would say that because of his decision to embrace a false Messiah, Jesus was not a false Messiah, but in their minds he was, they would see him as a traitor. They would see him as someone who was worse than a Gentile, beyond recovery, beyond reconciliation that he not only had no place among them at all, but he was hated more than their greatest enemy in history. That is how they would have seen him, even though he would have given everything so that they would know the God that he knows. Now, I'm explaining this to you because I want you to see that in their mind, he would no longer be a Jew, he would no longer be of Israel. And I want you to understand that because when he goes on in chapter 9 and he speaks about those who are of Israel and not all are of Israel who are descendant from Israel, he introduces a very important principle. And that is that just because you are a child of Abraham, that doesn't mean that you have a place in the kingdom of heaven. And this would be in total opposition to everything that Pharisaical Judaism taught. In fact, this is one of the key premises of Pharisaical Judaism, and that is that if you are born of the child of Abraham, then you will have a place in the kingdom of heaven. So I believe the Apostle Paul uses that as a means of addressing this issue of his fellow Jews rejecting the Messiah for who he is. Continuing in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. And then he begins with an example, But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Okay, so you could say that, well, it wasn't according to all of the flesh, just part of the flesh, just the flesh coming from Sarah. But no, he is using this in order to explain the spiritual truth, the spiritual reality that the promise of the Messiah, not the promise of the land, but the promise of the Messiah, which is what he's referring to, what he's talking about. The promise of the Messiah is for Israel, yes, but not all of Israel, because some of Israel is not going to want to embrace the Messiah for who he is. So what happens if they fail to believe, if they choose not to believe, well, then they are not a part of the kingdom of God. They are not children of God, as he said in verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. He uses this example relative to the flesh in order to show the spiritual reality and the truth that just because you're a Jew, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Just because you're an Israelite, it doesn't mean you're going to be saved. Now, I know that this is very difficult for a lot of people to consider, because I have encountered a lot of people 
who really want to believe that all of Israel is going to be saved. And in a sense, that's true, but it is not the Israel of the flesh. It is the Israel of the heart. It is the Israel of the spirit. You see, from God's perspective, his Messiah was the fulfillment of the law and the invocation of the new covenant. He has received everyone who was willing to believe according to the criteria that he established. And those who were part of Israel, because of course the first people who heard the gospel were of Israel, those who were of Israel who chose to believe in the Messiah, well, from God's perspective, they still are the children of Israel. They still are the children of Abraham, and they are the children of God. But those who rejected the Messiah... They may be Israel according to the flesh, but not according to the Spirit. They may be Israel in the sense that God made a promise that they would inherit the land, but they are not the Israel who he promised would receive the inheritance of eternal life, the inheritance of the Messiah, all that an individual truly has a need for for life and godliness. That was something else. And it is my sincere belief that our God has been true to Israel, that he has fulfilled his obligations to Abraham, and he has made the land available to them again to this day. And if they leave, he probably will do it again. I believe that he will be true to his covenant to Abraham and to his descendants. However, there was another part of Israel that chose to believe him, and you must acknowledge that this Israel, according to the new covenant, is an Israel of God that the other Israel is not. There were Gentiles who began to believe in the Messiah, and they initially were converted to Judaism to become a part of Israel first, because that's what the people assumed, until Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. And then after that, the church was willing to acknowledge that a Gentile did not have to first become a Jew before they could be saved. And that introduced an opportunity for our God through the Apostle Paul to explain to people that there is now a new creation in Christ Jesus where there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no Israel, there is no nothing except the children of God. And that is the fundamental truth that we really rest in today. The objective is not to figure out how to become a Jew. The objective is not to figure out how to become a part of the right Israel. And the objective is definitely not to try to figure out how to become a good Gentile. The objective is to become a child of God, a new creation in Christ Jesus, and to live according to the new covenant. The objective is to discover what our God has given to us, what he has revealed to us, so that we can begin to discover and know who he is as a person. That is our objective, to discover the implications of what he has done, to discover what he has given, and to apply all that we have in Christ Jesus in our lives now, today. That is what the new covenant is. It is not about trying to figure out how to make people Jews or make people non-Jews or to make people Israel or not Israel. He used this in order to communicate the reality that there is now a new creation in Christ Jesus and that we are to embrace that. That is what we are to embrace. That is how we are to live. I realize that this is very awkward for a lot of people because people really want Israel. They really want it. They really want the nation of Israel and the people of the flesh. Why do they want it? I'll tell you why. This is what I have found out personally over the last 20 years or so. 
I am fully convinced in my mind that the reason why people are trying to hang on to physical Israel as they do is because they don't want to lose an opportunity to be blessed. That's that's the real issue for many people. They believe that if they can identify the, the right Israel and they give them money or they give them favors or whatever they do, then God will bless them in return. That's why they want the right Israel, so that they can be blessed. And the reason why they pursue that is because they're not blessed. That's why. They are not blessed, and so they're trying to find some blessings. And you know why they're not blessed? They're not blessed because of one of two possible reasons. Either, number one, they do not know the blessings that they have already received in Christ Jesus, Or they are not in Christ Jesus and they have no blessings anyway. And so the fact that they acknowledge that they have no blessings of God in their life makes perfect sense. And they should do something about it. But they're doing the wrong thing and they are pursuing the wrong people. There is a people of God. There is a God. You must pursue the Messiah yourself personally. Be born again by the living God. Embrace the gospel and live according to the new covenant that has been revealed. The Apostle Paul expresses here in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, that people made choices back then. And just as they made choices back then, people make choices today. And you need to understand this, because you have a God who does discriminate between people. And the way that he does it is not by force. He does it by presenting the truth and giving people the freedom to believe what they want to believe. He intervenes only to a certain extent, and that is to present the truth of who he is, what he's done, and what he's got to offer. But he discriminates between the saved and the lost because he only wants people who want him. And if a person does not want him, they're not going to get him or anything he has, at least not for long. That was his decision. He stands by that decision, and everyone in this world will make a decision, even if they claim that they don't. Their decision is made by their indecision. And everyone will receive one of two possible outcomes. One, destruction and eternal life separated from the living God. And the other, the mercy of God and eternal life with peace and rest. And I will continue in the next broadcast. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net